Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of The Informed Catholic. This is going to be episode eight of The Informed Catholic, uh, season three, episode eight of 2021. So uh, before we begin, please subscribe and share to the podcast. If you like what I do and you think I'm doing a great job, please subscribe and share with your friends. It will be a great help. Now that we got this out of the way, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of the Rosary, pray for us. St. Joseph, Guardian of the Church, pray for us. And St. Michael the Archangel, defend us from evil. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so uh, I have an article here from um, LifeSite News. Uh, breaking, Twitter permanently bans President Donald J. Trump from the platform. The social media platform justified his decision by saying, we have permanently suspended the account due to the risk of further in, uh, incitement of violence. Uh, this is by Raymond Wolf. Okay, so um, <clears throat> January 8th, 2021, Twitter, Twitter permanently banned President Donald J. Trump's account on Friday evening. Following similar actions by Facebook, Instagram, Twitter had temporarily suspended President Trump's on Wednesday while hinting at a future removal. After close review of recent tweets from the from the um, at real Donald Trump account and the context around them, specifically how they are being received and interpreted on and off Twitter. We have permanently suspended the account due to the risk of further incitement of violence, according to a statement from the big tech company. <clears throat> All right. Um, Sydney Powell, Lynn Wood, and General... Oh, Sorry, General Michael Flynn, all were purged from the platform as well. This is this is what they've been waiting for. This is what they've been waiting for. They've been waiting. This is a way that now they're attacking Parler. Uh, Parler is actually kind of like a Twitter for conservatives. Conservatives went and started their own social media network and they did. And what happened now, because Parler is dependent on um, having their um, their app distributed through Amazon, through Google, through uh, Apple App Store, now they're all telling Parler, we're dropping you. First, they tell Parler that they wanted them to change their policies. They, in other words, they wanted Parler to adopt their policies sort of like policing people. And that's exactly what they've been doing. Well, now it's all about conformity. Conform or you can't run a business. Welcome to 2021. All right. Now let's see what's going to happen on YouTube to all the... um conservative pages watch as they start slowly knocking every single one of them off like you know 
like target, like ducks in a, uh, or, you know, fish in a bucket. It's unbelievable. We're going to see this, and this is going to be serious. Now, what's going to happen? The backlash to this, how conservatives are going to respond, because the biggest problem is, is that all conservatives have to unite. Timothy Gordon was correct when he said that we have to put aside our petty differences. Protestants, Baptists, born-again Christians, um, you know, charismatic, non-denominational. We've got to put aside our differences. Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Orthodox Christians in general, Coptics, got to put aside our differences. Okay? We have to put aside our differences. Conservative non-believers, those of you who, who believe in the Western value, conservative values of classical learning, though you may not believe in God or struggle with believing in God or don't know if there is a God, fine. Everybody has to come together and unite. We got to unite and build a fence, lock arms with each other and start standing up for our beliefs. I, I'm not sorry I put out the last episode saying that that we're going to be, uh, that 2020 was, was stolen. I'm not sorry. I do believe it. I believe it with all my heart. And I believe there's going to be a persecution coming. All right? Many of our leaders in the churches have failed us. They've abandoned us. Uh, I, I now, I feel the Republican Party abandoned us. The leaders. I'm sorry, but I don't know if I'm a Republican anymore now. I can't say I am. I'll, I'll find out within two years. Right now, I am politically orphaned. I'm a political orphan now. I have no party affiliation anymore. I'm still a conservative. I'm still an Orthodox Christian, an Orthodox Catholic. And I will always consider myself that. But after seeing how they have failed to stand up and how many of them have sold, sold us out, and yeah, I do believe that Vice President Mike Pence betrayed us. He abandoned us. He betrayed President Trump, and I believe McConnell is a tra is a traitor. I believe in even uh, Lindsey Graham betrayed us. I'm glad people walked up to him in the airport and, and called him out. I'm glad people walked up to Mitt Romney. He walked in on a plane and he was called out. These guys have created their own little political, little social network, and they all abandoned all of us. They all created their own world. It's a world for them. It's politics for them. And for the rest of us, we're just the unwashed masses. You know, they, they live in their own private world. They have no contact with, the, with their constituents. They have no contact with, with conservative, average working people. 
They just want to. They just want to con- continue in that stupid political machine, that little system, the little private system that they created. They turned on him because they didn't like the national populism he made. President Trump had a voice. He knew how to talk to people. He reached out to people. He reached out to people that, for the first time, they believed that someone was speaking on their behalf. Someone spoke and thought like them. Someone knew how they felt. He knew how to reach out to people. All right? He was not polished. He was not articulate. He was not what you call sophisticated. He was like the average American. How average people, working class people think and feel. All right? He didn't put on a show like... Mitt Romney does comes in with his well manicured mannerisms, and McConnell in his rather corpse like behavior. These guys all have made a career for themselves in politics, and the rest of us are just dumb sheep that's ready for the slaughter. They come in there, they'll, they'll, they'll. They'll have a, a good rehearsal. They'll say the, the right words just, just to get enough people to believe them. And then they'll get your vote and they'll give you the finger as they walk away. That's, that, that, that's them. But Trump came along and he did it. He did it. He, man, he, he really spoke for people and he kept his promises. That's they don't want. Politics to them is we make empty promises to you and we never keep them and you vote for us and then you shut up afterward. That's how they look at it. You know, it's a game. So, like I said, they're beginning a purge. All right, so there's a little link here. Let me see the purge. They're purged. Okay, the Federalist, Michael Flynn, Sidney Powell, are permanently banned from Twitter. We're going to check that out. This is from the Federalist. Interesting. Wow. All right, so you see there's a lot of material here for us to go through. All right, Trump had tweeted Friday the 75,000, um, more than uh, 75 Hundreds, thousands, great American patriots who voted for me, America first and make America great again, will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape or form. So what's so threatening about that? He also posted a tweet announcing he would not attend Biden's slated inauguration. Good. Twitter claimed that these two tweets must be read in the context of a broader event in the country and the way and and the ways in which the president's statements can be mobilized by different audiences, including to incite violence, as well as the context of the pattern of behavior from this account in recent weeks. Okay, hold on a minute. What about Eliana Omar's anti-Semitism? What about the the Ayatollah of Iran and his anti-Semitic remarks. Okay. What about some of the people from Antifa? What about some of Bernie's people, the things that they said? Okay. 
What about some of the stuff that AOC, she said about, uh, about uh, you know, putting together records on all the Trump supporters and sort of like shaming them or, or like sort of making a witch hunt. What about, what about all these people? What about some of the statements by Black Lives Matter? The threatening remarks that they made. Why always is always got to be Trump supporters and they always, they're the ones that people on the left get to call the Trump supporters, white supremacists, anti-Nazis, uh, uh, you know, and all kinds of other, all, all kinds of things, all kinds of monstrous things. They can get, they can throw the names, all right? They can, they can do that. They can throw names and racist remarks and, and all kinds of things, you know, stigmatizing you, putting the label that you're a racist, you're a, a homophobe, you're, um, uh, what do you call it, a white supremacist, you're a Nazi. They can, they can put those names on you, stick them on your back, and, and, and they can point to you and, and call you that without any evidence. But meanwhile, Joe Biden can go, uh, when he was vice president under Obama, he went down to Larry Bird's uh, funeral and gave the, the eulogy. Right? And Larry Bird, Senator Bird, he has names, highways, and buildings named after him. Right? I mean, all that's okay. And Joe Biden has a history of saying racist things. That's okay. See what I'm saying? It's all it's a double standard, and this is something for some reason conservatives don't stand together and fight. He also posted a tweet announcing he would not attend Biden's slated inauguration. Twitter claimed that okay, I read this part. The company then alleged that Trump's tweets broke its uh glorification of violence policy. Okay? Uh which restricts posts that glorify, celebrate, praise, or condone violent crimes, violent events where people were targeted because of their membership in in a protected group. Huh. Twitter has uh, lifted up numerous accounts and posts directly advocating for murder of presidents and his supporters. Twitter has lifted. Uh, Twitter has left up. Huh, excuse me. Twitter has left up numerous accounts and posts directly advocating for murder of the president and his supporters. Militant Iranian dictator Ayatollah Khomeini, who denies the Holocaust, okay, called Israel a a um, is a cancerous growth to be uprooted and destroyed also remains on the platform with nearly a million followers. He had strongly hinted at pl uh, plans of violence against Trump and other Americans earlier this month, including in a tweet that has since been taken down. Twitter ha and Facebook have aggressively singled out President Trump for censorship in the past and have blocked unfavorable coverage of legitimate news coverage about his opponents. Hypocrisy. Ileana Omar can get away with it. Ocasio-Cortez can get away with it. The Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran can get away with it, right? If Hitler was alive today and he had a Twitter account, he would get away with it. Amazing. And, all, you know, of course, the New York Times and all the others are all happy about this. The New York Times, which also denies the Holocaust, you know, according to Mark Levin, and I believe him, you know, it's amazing. All right, so that was um, 
Okay, that was <laughs> unbelievable. It's, it's you know I, I I know, I guess we all knew it was it was coming, but <laughs> unbelievable. Let me check out this here on glorification of violence. Okay. Oh, okay, this is a Twitter, the Twitter Policy Help Center. Listen to this. March 2019. You may not threaten violence against an individual or a group of people. We also prohibit glorification of violence. This, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a farce. What is it, a violation of the policy? I mean, okay, but guess what? They don't follow it themselves. Let's go here to the uh, purging part here when I, went, I was looking at earlier from the Federalists. Let's check this out. Michael Flynn, Sidney Powell are permanently banned from Twitter. Okay, this is January 8th. In Big Tech's most recent censorship sweep, this is by Jordan Davidson, in Big Tech's most recent censorship suite on Friday, Twitter permanently suspended the accounts of former National Security Advisor General Michael Flynn and former Trump campaign lawyer Sidney Powell, claiming they violated the platform's policies against harmful activity. The accounts have been suspended in line with our policy um, on coordinated harmful activity, a Twitter spokesman told ABC News. We've been clear that we will take strong enforcement action on behavior that has the potential to lead to offline harm and given the renewed potential for violence surrounding this type of behavior in the co coming days, we will permanently suspend accounts that are solely dedicated to sharing, um, you know, you know, quite, you know, quite, I have no idea what that means, but I guess it must mean a, a Twitter, maybe some kind of online saying, I guess. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's sad. I mean, this is, this is, this is, this is what we came to. All right. So let's check out another article. Okay. Saturday, January 9th. Um, here. Comply or disobey. Priests explain just, just versus unjust laws. There are times to prudently comply to unjust laws. And then there are times to accept martyrdom for God. This is by Father Stephen uh, Rudder, SSPX. Okay, be interesting. January 8th, 2021. After eight days were accomplished that the child should be circumcised. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy, Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear faithful. Okay, oh, okay. I see. This is going to be a, uh, a sermon. You know what? There's a video. Better, than, better hear it from him than me. After eight days were accomplished, that the child should be circumcised. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Dear faithful, on this eighth day after the birth of Jesus, we like to consider why was it that on this eighth day the child needed to be circumcised. In order to understand this, we first must understand what was circumcision and who was this child. Circumcision, we know, was a ceremony given by God to Abraham. A ceremony which would 
be an act of faith in Christ to come. By means of this ceremony, the patriarchs showed that they believed that from their offspring, the Savior, the Redeemer, would come into this world. In this ceremony, which was given by God to Abraham, was enshrined into the Mosaic Law by Moses. All children on the eighth day after their birth, all male children, would be circumcised to show the parents' faith in the Redeemer, to incorporate this child into the chosen people. And this, of course, would be the foundation of the justification, because faith precedes charity, an act of faith in Christ so as to receive charity. So that was the ritual and the law of circumcision. And who was this child? This child, we know, was the fulfillment of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. All of the law, all of the prophets pointed to this child. They found their completion, their perfection in this child. And therefore we can see why this child, on that account, would not need to be circumcised. This child did not need to make an act of faith in the Redeemer to come. He was the Redeemer. In fact, being that this child was God, Jesus Christ was God, he could not, in fact, even make an act of faith because he had the beatific vision. He was God. If this is the case, if this child had no need to be circumcised, why does Scripture say that on the eighth day that this child should be circumcised? Why should he be circumcised? And the answer is, is because it was the law. And because our Lord Jesus Christ came to put himself under the law, so as to redeem all those who were under the law. Because our Lord Jesus Christ loved the law of his Father. He wanted to willingly submit himself to the law, to sanctify the law, so he could be sanctified likewise through God's law. So our Lord loved the law. And if we want to be holy, we must likewise love the law. So to know how to love the law, we must know what is the law. What is the nature and what are the consequences of law? The scholastic definition of law we know is an ordinance of reason. When we say ordinance, we're speaking of an authoritative command. There's authority behind it. It's an ordinance of reason. When we say reason, we mean that the lawgiver must use his reason to understand human nature, to understand the common good, to understand the end of society. So it must be it's a reasonable act. It's not just a blind act of force. He must make it reasonably and give it reasonably, and it must be received reasonably. So it's an ordinance of reason for the sake of the common good. So every law, to be a just law, must be for the sake of the common good, not for the personal interest of those who are making the laws. When we say common good, that's the very purpose of society. The purpose of civil society is the common good. And when we speak of common good, we're speaking of peace and prosperity. By peace, we mean the virtuous life. All laws to be laws, to be just laws, must promote virtue, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. And likewise, the laws must support prosperity. 
They must be such which allow a healthy, strong middle class to emerge or be sustained, because, as Aristotle even knew, society cannot exist without a healthy, prosperous middle class. So the end of the law is the common good of society. And this law, to be a just law, to be a law at all, must be promulgated, made public, by a person who has care of the community, a person who has a jurisdiction, who has power over that community to make a law. And if all of these elements are in place, we have a just law, and we must love this law, and this law becomes a road sign to happiness. A just law is a road sign to natural happiness and supernatural happiness. And we think of scripture, he has loved justice and hated iniquity. That must be our attitude in front of just laws. We must love justice, but likewise hate iniquity, which is to say to hate unjust laws. So to understand this more, what is a just and unjust law, we'll look at the hierarchy of laws. In first place, we have what's called the eternal law. The eternal law is God's wisdom directing all things to their perfection. God in his wisdom created the whole world. He gives each thing a specific nature, certain operations which flow from that nature. That's God's eternal law, immutable, eternal. It is, it, it, it is God, in fact. So we have the eternal law. And every single just law is reducible to the eternal law in order to be a just law. Then we have what's called the natural law. The natural law is defined as man's rational participation in the eternal law. So we have a reason. We reflect upon our nature. We reflect upon certain first principles. For example, every, every effect must have a proportionate cause. Every faculty must have a certain end, a certain purpose. Nature abhors a vacuum. There are certain principles which we understand. And from that we can understand what activities must we do to be happy and holy. What activities must we avoid to be happy and to be holy. And in fact, man, reflecting upon his nature, can come to understand nine of the Ten Commandments. So in fact, nine of the Ten Commandments are nothing more than the natural law made explicit by God on account of our blindness from original sin. So even a man without revelation should be able to reflect upon his dependence and realize he must worship God. He must not blaspheme. We could not know that there's a specific day that we must worship God. So the third commandment we could not know by the natural law. But we, must, we could also know the fourth. Honor your parents and so on. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not cover your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's goods. Do not lie. All these things can be known by man reflecting upon his nature and that every faculty he has has a purpose. So that's the natural law. And then we come to the positive law. Law is called positive because it's positive. It's put forward by lawgivers. We have the divine positive law, which is God speaking through revelation, giving certain dictates. We think of circumcision to Abraham. So God has spoken. This is what you must do to be saved. And God, of course, is infallible. But we also have what's called ecclesiastical positive law. That is, the church, reflecting upon her nature and her mission, gives laws to help people 
keep the commandments and go to heaven. And here, at least for those who've attended the traditional Mass for many years, they understand that the Church is able to put forward unjust laws. And she's been doing it for 50 years. She puts forward things as laws, which are not laws, because they contradict divine revelation, because they contradict the infallible laws of the Church from the past. And we're accustomed to disobeying these unjust laws. We know that, as St. Peter said to the Jews, it's better to obey God than man. So we see there are times when we must disobey unjust laws, even given by the highest authorities of the Church. But that brings us to civil positive law, the final type of positive law. That's when the civil authority promotes laws. So again, for the civil authority to promote a just law, it must be reasonable, it must be for the common good, and it must be properly promulgated. And so when the civil authority promotes, promulgates a just law, it comes from God, and we are sanctified by obeying it. We must obey it. But we know, especially in this modern world, that civil authorities put forward many unjust laws. Laws which are not for the common good. And there are three types of unjust laws. The first is when the content of the quote-unquote law is unjust. For example, abortion, that is an unjust law. Or any of these ideologies which so offend the natural law. These are unjust laws. And in such a case, we have a duty to disobey. We cannot sin, we cannot offend God to please the state. So those laws are very clearly unjust. We must necessarily disobey them. But there are other types of unjust laws which are, require more discernment. We have laws which are unjust because they're for the personal advantage or the agenda of the person who makes them and not for the common good. Just remember, each law to be a just law must be for the sake of the good of society, the peace and prosperity of society. But if the legislator or the person in power is making them for his own personal advantage, making them on account of an agenda which is contrary to the common good, is an unjust law. Likewise, a law can be unjust if it's made by somebody who has no power to make the law. For example, each legislator has power over their jurisdiction. He can't make a law for another jurisdiction. Likewise, in the systems of government today, is the legislative power, not the executive power, which makes laws. So the person must have jurisdiction to make a just law. And if the person does not have jurisdiction and tries to force something outside of his jurisdiction, it's unjust. We think, for example, of the civil society. If they're trying to enforce laws inside, for example, the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is an independent, perfect society founded by our Lord Jesus Christ with his own hierarchy and his own laws. She's not subject to the civil authority in her domain of worship, in her domain of liturgy, faith, and morals. So we see that there's two elements here. We have somebody making a law for their personal advantage or making a law outside of their jurisdiction. And what is to be our reaction in front of such unjust laws? Well here, obedience, the virtue of obedience, gives way to the virtue of prudence. So they do not bind our conscience directly. We have to prudently consider them. So the virtue of prudence is, we know, the, the queen of the moral virtues. No action we do can be holy unless it's prudent. And the defini definition of prudence is the right reason of things to be done. 
to rightly consider the whole situation and see what is the best thing to do for my sanctification, for the good of the church, for the good of society. And there will be times when we externally comply to unjust laws because we can't win in that case. There will be other times when we must be willing to suffer to disobey such unjust laws because we recognize, for example, that this, this particular unjust law is merely the first or the second in a series of unjust laws which are coming. And some will be coming which will violate my conscience, which I, w- which I can't accept. And therefore it's better to resist sooner than later. For example, we know in revolutions, civil disobedience is a virtuous and good thing. And so, But even when we do obey these unjust laws, we must at least internally resist. Internally resist whenever we must externally comply. So if there's an unjust law and we're forced for some reason to obey it, we must internally resist, lest, as Solzhenitsyn warned in regards to the communist revolution, we begin to participate to believe in the lie. We must be careful of that. We must not participate and believe in lies, because once we do, these lies will destroy us. We'll become slaves to these lies. And so the virtue of prudence considers all the elements at stake and decides in which situation should we externally comply, in which situation should we not externally comply for the sake of a greater good, which is what's best for my family, the church, what's the best for civil society. And then it could be asked, well, doesn't this create a situation where we're in a certain sense lying? We comply in one situation, but not in another. And the answer is no. We'll give an example, for example, of priests in communist countries. And this happens even today. Where externally, in public, they wear civil clothes, suit and tie, and they disguise, they hide all elements of their priesthood so as not to be caught, because if they're caught, they won't be able to hear confessions have mass anymore. So we're externally complying in public, but they're resisting internally. Then as soon as they're in a safe place, they even disobey externally by putting back on their clerical garb. That's not a lie, that's just prudence, analyzing the situations, saying what's the best thing for my faithful, for me, for the church, and for the country. And there are times where it is very good to show unjust rulers that we are disobeying and that we won't participate anymore in their lives. So we leave you with these different principles so that you can take them in the world in which we live, analyze situations and see what is the most prudent thing to do. What is the most prudent, the most holy thing to do? And we will certainly need in these times great wisdom. Great wisdom. Wisdom is that virtue by which we see all things in light of eternity. That's really key. We must look at everything from light of eternity because that is the only true perspective. Nobody gets out of life alive. We must look at all things in relation to our death to make sure that at our death we have eternal life. So that's already something to ask for. And beg the Blessed Virgin Mary who is the seat of wisdom. Ask her to see all things in light of eternity. And if we want a happy and peaceful new year, that's the way. Beg the grace to look at all things in light of eternity, not in light of time. So there's wisdom. We'll likewise need supernatural prudence, the right reason of things to be done. 
Keep in mind there's a distinction between natural prudence and supernatural prudence. Natural prudence only considers this life and what's best for me in this life. Supernatural prudence considers the next life as well. For example, that's why the saints, there were times when they would hide from persecution and other times when they would embrace it. It's that supernatural prudence. What is the best thing to do here and now for the church? And Our Lady, we say in the litany, was most prudent. She really looks at all things. She considered the whole picture and wanted God's glory in all things. And likewise, we must really pray for a supernatural courage. This willingness to suffer for Christ's sake. We must be willing to concede certain things when it's merely a question of convenience. But when it's a question of God's honor, there we must be very courageous and be willing to suffer for the sake of God's honor. And if we want to know whether or not we'll be courageous when the time comes, ask ourselves how much we hate sin now. If we don't hate sin, we'll never have the wisdom, we'll never have the prudence, we'll never have the courage to do what we ought to do when it's time to do it. We must learn to hate sin. That's the only thing which will give us the wisdom, the prudence, and the courage. And who is more courageous than the Blessed Virgin Mary? Think of her son, this wonder worker who was so loved. It was easy to follow him for those three years when everybody loved him. But for those last few days, she followed him. She saw him spat upon, mocked, ridiculed, slapped, persecuted, and she still followed him because she had this great courage. And she had the courage even to stand at the foot of the cross. And that's courage. She stood. Stabat Mater. She didn't fall down. She wasn't in such anguish she couldn't function. She was courageously accepting the death of her son for the glory of his father. So let us beg the Blessed Virgin Mary for this wisdom, for this prudence, and for this courage. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Okay, so, well, that was, uh, that was good. Get rid of that. Okay, that was very good. I like that. It's very, you know, I think that was good to hear. So let me stop it here for a moment. I think what he, what he's saying is true. But I don't know if a lot of people really understand that because a lot of people, a lot of Christians out there are not, they haven't been raised in the faith. Ever since Vatican II, uh, there's been a watering down of the faith. I don't think anybody really knows um, how to uh, stand up when to say no, you know, and when is it proper to comply that doesn't undermine your faith? The problem is I don't think they know how to do that. I don't think any uh, anybody knows how to do that. I mean, how many people are actually taking the time to study their faith? We don't live in the, we, we have watered down the faith. We have come into a, uh, a, a pseudo- neo-paganistic culture and the problem is you make okay you can look up the faith you can learn it on your own you could study it but the problem is you don't live in a culture where you know how to resist back then let's say in the early days of the christian faith 
they had a semi-culture where they met and supported each other. They used to meet each other late at night. They used to meet each other when they knew they had the freedom to. They would meet in the catacombs. They studied the faith. And then, you know, other times it was more per more persecution. Other times it was less persecution. But in one way or another, they actually studied the faith and they knew the faith. This time, it's not like that. A lot of people are very, very lazy. You know, they want a feel-good Christianity, a feel-good Christianity that makes them feel good for the moment. You know, it's a little bit like Joe Olstein in a sense, you know, kind of, kind of. But do they really know how to stand up? I, you know, a lot of others, others who are, I guess you can say, we're, you know, brothers and sisters, but Christian, but they have a much more social justice attitude about Christianity. So for them to comply is very easy. They don't think they're they don't think they're violating the Christian faith, because they think feeding the poor, the hungry, injustice, um, uh, Medi uh, Medicaid or healthcare for all, education for all, taking care of the elderly, um, you know, they don't. It's not the same thing. They don't understand that these things. These things are good. They're good in themselves, but they're not. They're not all moral. They're not all moral. And the problem is, we know what happens with healthcare. Healthcare is a very complicated thing. Not in the sense that that, that it's wrong to have healthcare, but other people they view abortion as healthcare, contraception as healthcare, uh, euthanasia as healthcare. Um. Sex, uh, gender reconstruction as healthcare right. They view all these things, but they don't understand that not everything is morally just. It's not even morally good. It's not even morally good to God. And they don't understand that. So what they view and what we view as Christians, they don't view things from an Orthodox Christian perspective. They view things from a social justice Christian perspective, what they deem is a Christian perspective. And that's very different. Race is a big, sometimes race plays a big, a big part in it, for, especially for some people who happen to be of African-American descent or Hispanic descent. Everything is always viewed through race because of their own personal experiences and what they view as an injustice. And so they're going to interpret it from that social justice uh, standpoint. And that's also very difficult. It makes it very difficult to communicate with people. So in other words, that's how they see it. And so therefore, that's how they're going to interpret it. And that is that is exactly what they want, because that to them is the big evil. And they're told that. That's why someone like um, Raphael, uh, Raphael Warnock, he knows his audience. And he knows how to use this, use the platform, especially himself as a minister. He's going to use, he's, he's going to weaponize it. And he has weaponized and he's done a good job. Stacey Abrams in Georgia, she knows this herself and she knows how to, how to, how to reach out to her audience. 
Race is a very powerful weapon for the left, and they use it all the time. Unfortunately, when it comes to conservatives, uh, Republicans especially, they do a very poor job of understanding it because they don't know how to wrap their minds around it. They don't know how to grasp it. They don't understand why this is a big issue. First of all, they haven't done enough to try to understand that audience and to understand you know, where they're coming from. You know, not denying that there isn't racial injustice. There is. It's just that weaponizing it the way the left does, they weaponize it, but they're not, they have no intention of solving the problem. Their intention is always to kick the problem down the road. They did that under the Obama administration when it came for the DREAM Act. Remember, for, for, the, for those who are immigrant children, he didn't sign the bill. He kicked it down the road because the Democrats wanted him to so that hopefully this would help Hillary win, right? They, want to we- they weaponized it. The idea not to sign it, but use it to get people to vote for Hillary. In other words, keep it always as the unreachable prize. She signed, you know, she, you know, you know, they, uh, they wait for, they wait for her. In other words, vote for her and she'll sign it. He could have signed it when he was president. So basically he did them an injustice. He cheated them. He could have signed it and solved the problem for them. Then Hillary came along and then, no, don't sign it. Kick it down the road. Leave it for Hillary in the future. So, you know, let's leave it as the prize and force people to vote for her. So that we can say she's going to sign it. And then what happens? She didn't get elected. President Trump offered to sign the bill. The Democrats went crazy. Because it was supposed to be theirs. The idea behind it is to weaponize it. If Trump signed it, then they had no leverage for themselves for a future election. This is the problem. You see what I'm saying? That's not justice. It's also manipulation. It's political manipulation. It's using it as a carrot. That's the problem there. All right, we're going to end it here. I'm going to come back later on and um, we'll, uh, we'll try to catch up with more events. All right, soon Lent's coming around the corner and let's hope maybe we can have um, a good, um, I guess you can say, um, good penance because we both need it because what's happening we needed to improve ourselves and we have to become holy and become saints so let's say a prayer in the name of the father son and holy spirit hail mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus holy mary mother of god pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death amen our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless.